come on down to Narangong Where narrow-minded folk belong Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be There's a bakery and a primary school A decent pub and a public pool There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot So come on down and grab a beer You can stay if you're from here And if you're not, you best be moving along From Narangong You can't G'day cats Last week we heard part one of ANZACYC Obviously it was pretty touching stuff and we're still feeling the emotional effects quite keenly. We had a great response from our listeners, lots of comments, lots of interest in what happened to these three brave lads. Oddly enough, we also had people calling in to ask about the title of the episode, ANZACYC. Phone calls, couple of emails, people were confused by what it could mean. I mean, who the bloody hell are you? ANZACYC, what does it stand for? It stands for Australia. It stands for sacrifice and freedom and history. It stands for Anzac, you cunt. With that, let's get back to the story. We left our lads sitting in a dugout, sharing a song of their homeland and the bond of brotherly love. Without further ado, here's part two of ANZACYC. George was sitting on a rock his back against a stack of crates and a sheet of paper stretched before him. They'd spent a week in the trenches and were well dug in. A preliminary charge against the Turkish lines had proved deadly and unsuccessful, but they'd been blessed now with a period of relative inactivity, during which all five men had rotated to the rear lines to assist with the installation of artillery pieces. George reached into his pocket and withdrew a fine fountain pen. The cap was enameled in a deep blue and the pocket clip glinted in the sun. The barrel was the same deep blue and pinstriped with shining silver. He'd purchased it in Adelaide the day of his departure to fulfil a promise he'd made to his sweetheart to write her often. It was a fancier thing than he could truly afford, to be honest, but he had forgotten to pack a pen and had not discovered the oversight until the day they were shipping off to Western Australia. Not trusting foreign stores to carry such an exotic item, he sneaked away for long enough to find a local merchant with a soft spot for the brave lad riding home, who let him have the pen for far less than it was worth. He admired the fine instrument now, then licked the nib and endeavoured to write home to his sweetheart. Here, George, what are you about? Asked John. Me, mate, replied George. I'm endeavouring to write home to my sweetheart. A bloody letter, mate, said John incredulously. Have a go at that. Didn't fancy you for a reading man. But George was indeed a reading man. The people of Narangong have always been an educated bunch, to be sure. They were well versed in the currents of the river and caprices of the season. But, at least in 1915, they had little need for the written word. George, however, came from a proud and learned family. His mother had not let him out to feed the chooks until he could spell chicken, nor out to milk the cow until he could count her teats. It paid off now, as he wrote his first letter home to his sweetheart, informing her of the progress of the war. Dear Catherine, George had written, The bloody war continues, and I bloody well continue with it. We have spent the last week in a trench, which is just a fancy term for Big Warhol. Our days are relatively boring, punctuated by brief but terrifying periods of excitement and death. Johnny Turk is not known for his hospitality and fancies himself a prankster, shooting at us whenever we dare show our heads. We have taken to shooting back. 
Some of the Poms came across young McCaffrey pissing on his feet the other day. Oh, they said knowingly. We have heard you bloody Aussies do that to prevent the trench foot. A jolly good idea it is. A good chortle we had, my love, as we explained to them that he just shoots crookeder than a bingaloo banker. As you can see, war is not such a bad time, other than the constant threat of death, injury and illness. Yours, George. John was more than a little impressed with the fine scratching that George had made across the page. He started to think of his own lass back home, and how she must be missing him. She was a wee and winsome thing, she was, and had promised that she would long for him and faithfully await his return. Just now, John hoped, she was sitting in her parents' house, working on her cross-stitch and pining away. The five men had grown closer, of course, since John had saved George's life. Nonetheless, it was with no small trepidation that John made his confession. George, there's this lass back home, you see. Ah, yes, said George, with a knowing look. There's this lass back home that I've been seeing for some time now. Sheila's her name. She's quite lovely, you see, and when I get back home, we're to be married. George nodded. The, the problem is, you see, I can't... You see, I can't... Well, I can't, I can't exactly read or write, mate. George hardly looked up from the page, and he gave an answer before John had the chance to ask the question. Of course, mate. I've been writing letters home for those two bastards since the day we pulled out Adelaide. As he gestured towards Don and Bruce, shirtless in the sun, bent over an artillery piece not too far away. John was beside himself. I wouldn't ask you to write much, mate. Just maybe a letter now and then, and, and letting her know that I'm alive and thinking of her to keep her heart warm while I'm away. So George became the official scribe of the group. Harold was equally enamoured of a girl back home, Sheila, whom he had met mere months ago. His impending departure had threatened their young love, and they married only a day before he shipped off to Turkey. The two gambos were not short on feelings, though they lacked the requisite verbiage to express the depth of their love. Sir George, the only one among them had been educated in the gentle arts of both writing and romantic composition, had swiftly assumed the burden of writing letters home. George spent long hours holding that beautiful pen, hunched over a single sheet of paper, writing carefully by the candlelight, pausing to brush away the dust that fell as artillery shells shook the trench walls, leaning back to avoid dripping sweat onto the letters as they crouched in the sun on the treeless expanse behind the front lines, and, on one memorable occasion, scratching out what John thought must be his last desperate expressions of love, as the two men huddled under an oilskin cape and shared a cigarette in a muddy crater in no man's land while bullets whizzed over them. George's letters home were a life vest in rough seas. Despite the absence of a single letter in return, not a one of them failed to write as often as he could. After six months in Gallipoli, the men transferred to the Western Front, and the letters continued. They fought side by side in the blasted French countryside, and shivered together in the snow-covered trenches that were little more than furrows in a great and deadly muddy plain. When their unit rotated back to Paris for a month of rest, George carefully recorded the breathless excitement of the men upon seeing the broad streets and strange sights of this cosmopolitan metropolis. When finally the Kaiser was broken and Germany brought to heel in a train car in the countryside, George put his own pen to paper once more, to tell those waiting anxiously at home of the men's imminent return. They stood silently, their hands gripping the railing as the ship approached the docks. None carried more than a rucksack and the freshly washed uniform he had on, but they passed a bottle between them and rocked, partly with the waves and partly to their own internal rhythms. As the sailors on one side busied themselves with coiled ropes and readied gangplanks, 
The five brothers in arms stood across the deck, looking back to sea. Not a word passed their lips in the past hour. Words had been replaced by a steady supply of rum and memories of the countless days that had gone before. The ship bumped up against the docks and shook the men from their quiet contemplation. Strains of music drifted over the railings and mixed with shouts from the crowds below. John looked down at the empty bottle in his hand and back at the men around him at the rail. He held the bottle over the railing and he cracked a smile as he dropped it into the gentle waves below. At the bottom of the gangplank, flashbulbs popped and flags snapped in the stiff breeze. It seemed like half of Adelaide had arrived to welcome the returning diggers. It was clear from their faces that a good many had come to welcome home the memory of men they'd never see again. Trains were waiting to carry them back to their homes in Victor or Portogata or all the way north to Copley. George, Bruce, Harold, Don and John made for the one that would carry them past Adelaide, up through Mount Barker and Murray Bridge and out into the rolling hills that would take them home. They stared silently out the windows as houses flashed by and crowds of people waved and cheered at every crossing. The houses thinned and the people with them and they were replaced by the land that had missed them too. Fields that cried out for attention these years past and lay ready now to be ploughed and planted and tended. Barn roofs needed repair and water tanks stripped and needed patching. There were sheep to be shorn and there was hay to rake, and the country welcomed them back with a warm smile and a list of chores that let them know they were home, and their home had missed them. The train clacked and hissed and squealed to a halt at a lonely stretch of road, almost exactly halfway between Narangong and Gambay. No bunting greeted them this time, but the tall grass waved to them, and Galahs shouted raucous hurrahs from the nearby trees. The warm sun and the smell of the earth let them know they were home. They stood and waited as the train clacked and hissed and chuffed its way into the distance, and then waited a few minutes more. Bruce finally broke the silence. He squinted up the road to Nara and said, Reckon we should be getting home, boys. The men nodded. Bruce and Don hoisted their rucksacks and turned north. John and Harold did the same, but as they turned south toward Gambo, George spoke out. Here, he said, as he reached deep into his pocket and withdrew a battered fountain pen. The barrel was scratched and the enamel on the cap was all but chipped off. He held it out to John. This pen said everything I ever wanted to, mate. John said nothing as he took it, but he let out a deep and shaky breath as he looked down at it and back up at George. Without a word, he slipped it in his own pocket, threw his rucksack over his shoulder, and turned down the road to Gambo. It was quite a hike up the road to Narra, but it was worth every step. George, Don and Bruce were greeted like heroes. A shout went up as they walked into town, and folks stepped from shop fronts and homes as they walked by to cheer their return. They soon forgot the blisters on their feet and the ache in their backs as they were swept into the pub pushed into the best seats at the bar and fated with beers and calls for retellings of their heroic endeavours. Down the road, after their own long walk, the Gambos met no cheering crowds. No one stepped out from a shop front to shout in glee at this joyous sight. No one rushed them into the Gambo pub to slake their thirst for local ale. They walked first up the main street to where Harold's wife still lived with her parents. What with the rush of marriage, Harold explained, they'd not found a place to move before he left. Reckon we're going to find a nice bit of land to build a place on, mate, he said to John. In all those letters, I told Sheila about a place just up and out of town that I've had my eye on. Nice bit of flat land with good soil. Was always a bit dear for just me, but I reckon her parents are willing to help us get on our feet. 
John smiled at his friend. I know what you mean, mate. My own Sheila's a lovely bird. I've been writing home to tell her of my love and devotion. Soon as I see her, I plan on giving her this. And he procured from his pocket a gold ring that shined in the bright sun. Picked it up in France. It's not much, but I reckon it'll be enough. Harold smiled at his friend, and they walked on. Quicker now, they had a happy purpose driving them forward. The town remained curiously quiet. It was not until they turned off the main road and onto the street on which Sheila still lived with her parents that they heard a sound. Across the street, a door swung open, and a young lady stepped through it holding an empty milk bottle. She caught sight of them and let out a small gasp. The milk bottle shattered on her doorstep as she fled back inside. That was bloody odd, said Harold. Too bloody right, mate, replied John. Too bloody right, mate. She turned white as a lamb. Struck now with curiosity and increasing trepidation, they continued down the road. They stopped in front of the largest house on the street. It was built of cut local stone and trimmed in red brick. A large veranda shaded the front, and roses bloomed in abundance on the garden hedge. John shook Harold's hand. Looks like you've done well, mate. I'll be seeing you. And he turned back up the road with a smile on his face, headed to see his own Sheila. He had barely walked 50 yards when a shriek brought him running back. Harold stood at the door, looking shaken. A man in the doorway held a letter in his hand, and a woman, presumably the source of the shriek, stood behind him, leaning on one hand on the wall for balance and fanning herself with the other. John hurried up in time to hear Harold say indignantly, I'm bloody well standing here and telling you I'm not dead as how you'd know. That's not what it said in this bloody letter, said the man in the doorway, and he held up a battered sheet of paper and began to read. Dear Sheila, the letter begins, he said pointedly to Harold. I regret to inform you that your bloody gambo husband has been killed in the war. Please do your best to maintain your morale. For the sake of king and country, you would do well to find yourself a good young lad to marry. I have heard that there are some strapping fellows up the road in Nara. Best. And he looked up at Harold with a disapproving stare as he finished the letter. Your bloody prime minister. What do you say to this then? He asked as he handed the letter to Harold. A letter from the bloody prime minister. By this point, John was standing at Harold's shoulder, and the two men looked down at the offending document. They could no more read the letter than they could write one, but the handwriting looked awfully familiar. That bloody bastard! Harold growled. He turned to look at John for confirmation, but John already was skidding around the roses at the end of the path, his boots kicking up dust as he ran back toward town. Back he ran, past the shattered glass, onto the main road toward the edge of town where Sheila had waited for him. His lungs burned and his legs screamed, but he could not slow down. He remembered running like this only once, on a rocky beach in a foreign land a lifetime ago. He turned onto the dirt road that led to Sheila's house, on, on, on in the hot sun, until at last he reached her door. Without pausing to catch his breath, he banged out a tattoo of impatience and desperation on the front door, and stood panting in anticipation. When at last the door was opened, he was greeted not by the tender arms of the young woman he'd left, but the wrathful stare of their mother. Some bloody nerve you have showing up here! She screeched as the door banged open. I would have thought you'd be bloody ashamed of yourself, you would! John, who had not yet caught his breath, could only gasp in confusion. Oh, letters! Was all he managed. Two bloody right letters! She shrieked back. Bloody letters, he says! She yelled over her shoulder as her husband appeared behind her. All right, Sheila, the man grumbled. Give the lad a rest. I'd say he's had a hard enough time as it is. Listen, mate, he said, as he gently manoeuvred his wife back inside the house and stepped onto the porch to talk to John. You've got a bloody nerve showing up here after what you've done to our Sheila. 
If you weren't a bloody cripple, you can believe we'd be having a much shorter conversation. And he shook his fist to emphasise his point. A cripple? Asked John incredulously. Take a look at me. I've got all my arms and legs, don't I? What do you want about? Well, it's all here in these bloody letters, isn't it? Said the man, holding out a bundle of papers covered in familiar handwriting. Now you take these and get off our porch before the missus makes me rethink my generosity. He threw the bundle at John and slammed the door, leaving him standing clutching a bundle of papers, gasping for air and grasping for answers. There was nothing for him to do but walk to town and find a learned man to decipher this mystery for him. By the time he'd made it back, the sun was setting. He trudged slowly into the pub, where he found Harold seated at the bar, an empty schooner in his hand and an unsteadiness about him that suggested it wasn't his first. Men were sitting at the bar, others at the tables, and some stood in the darkened corners, but all were staring at John. He took the empty seat beside Harold and ordered a beer of his own. Strange thing, you boys being here, said the publican as he set down John's beer. So it bloody seems, John replied. You couldn't read these letters for us, could you, mate? The publican dried his hands on a tea towel and took the bundled letters from John. These say they're from you, mate, said the publican, with some confusion. Letters I wrote home from the war, said John defiantly. I would like to know what I wrote. The publican seemed to accept this explanation, and he unfolded the letter. His lips moved as he ran his eyes across the page. You, uh, you want me to read this out loud? He asked, and looked around the pub. If you don't mind, your funeral, mate. Harold gave a hollow chuckle at this, but it came out sounding something closer to a sob, <laughs> and he quickly fell silent. John nodded at the publican to start. Dear Sheila, I have not fared well in this bloody war, having caught the clap from a bent in Cairo. You should have expected nothing more from a bloody gambo. Your philandering gambo bastard, John. Snickers rose from further down the bar. The publican placed the letter on the bar and opened the next. Dear Sheila, as you may have heard, the bloody war has not yet ended, nor has the inexorable spread of this bloody VD. At the most recent short-arm inspection, the doctor told me that it does not look good. Yours completely, for now, John. That bloody narrow cunt, gasped John, as the laugh spread around the room, that the publican already was unfolding the third and final letter. Dear Sheila, we have arrived safely in France, and thus I am writing you now a French letter. I am told that the term means something different to the palms with whom we are now stationed. I only wish they had explained the meaning of the term and the utility of its reference before I had caught the clap from that bloody bent in Cairo. The infection having spread too rapidly for modern medicine to control, the doctor was forced to take drastic action with the knife. I am afraid this will be quite a hindrance to our plans to marry and have dirty little gambo children upon my return. Without children, you will be a failure as a woman. Seems the only hope for your happiness will be to find a suitable husband. When I return, it will be as a broken and imperfect man. Surely I will not be able to endure the sight of you gallivanting about town with your new beau. Please, therefore, select a husband from a town of sufficient distance that I will never be forced to witness your idyllic domestic servitude. Yet close enough that you will be able to visit your parents frequently, one of approximately 40 to 45 miles distance would suffice, preferably located on a river for convenience and idyllic beauty. When I sat to ponder what towns fit this description, I could think of only one, Narangong. I am sure you will find there a suitable and whole man. Yours, John. Harold's head fell with a thump onto the bar, his beers having finally had their desired effect. 
John stared into his empty schooner and waved silently for another. Up the road in Narangong, the celebrations lasted for a week. George and Bruce were pleased to learn that they had become uncles in their absence, their younger brothers having found wives from out of town and moved swiftly as the men of Nara are wont to do. But as much rejoicing as there was, there was sadness too for their fallen comrade. On the day of the last celebrations, the three men gathered in the centre of town. The local blacksmith had stamped a plaque with Ken's name, and the people of Nara had gathered to see it dedicated to his memory. Standing on a quiet patch of grass, shaded by a solitary conifer, Don told the story of Ken's heroic and tragic sacrifice. The good people of Nara, looking up at the three brave lads who stood before them, thinking of the one who never returned, chanted back to him. Lest we forget. What a ripping yarn. That was part two of ANZACYC. Uh, we hope you join us next week. We're going to have a Christmas special we think you'll really like. Until then, take it easy.